If you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Today, we will very likely come to the end of Matthew's gospel account. We made it in first service, so if it's off in second service, I don't know what we'll do next week. So we're going to finish Matthew, and by this point in Matthew, we have had 28 chapters that have told us who Jesus is. He is the King. From the very opening, this is the King, this is the Messiah, this is the Son of David, the one with the right and the authority to rule over His people and over all the nations. Uh, We know that this is the Son of God. No one else could do what He does. No one else has this kind of authority over the elements of nature, over sickness, over demons. And over the last month or so, as we've looked at his death and his burial and his resurrection, we have seen maybe most clearly that this is Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is the one who stood in the place of sinners. This is the one who bore the righteous wrath of God poured out against sin. This is the one who will redeem a people for himself. And last week, we were reminded that that grave was not the end, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the focal point, the pinnacle of the Christian faith, is really the heart of the gospel. The fact that Christ lives means that his people will live. And the fact of that empty grave, the historical fact of an empty tomb, terrified the religious leaders for the same reason that it should terrify anybody who is hoping to approach God on their own way. Because the cross of Christ and the gospel is a death sentence to man-made religion. The gospel properly understood Again, with the empty grave and the resurrected Christ at its center, it puts an end to both sides of the spectrum. It puts an end to lawlessness, and it puts an end to legalism. The gospel says that there's nothing that I can do to make me right with God. It says that there's nothing that I can do to restore what sin broke, but that God did it all, that Christ on the cross accomplished what I could never do. And on the other hand, it's a gospel that does demand something. It's not just grace for the sake of grace. It's grace for the sake of changing lives. It's this compelling gospel that then demands a response. It demands worship. It demands obedience. And that's what we're left with after, again, 28 chapters of Matthew. But Matthew doesn't end with working through the disciples' responses. It doesn't end with the ascension of Christ into the clouds to be at the right hand of the Father. Matthew ends with a compelling mission statement. He ends with the one thing that the church is supposed to be about. And today we're going to close by looking at the King's Commission. If you're not there already, find your way to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read verses 16 through 20, and that's where we will go today. Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16, and this is what God's Word says. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, we're a people that are approaching a very familiar passage, one that we have read, one that we've heard, one that we have uh, been under the preaching and teaching of. And Lord, I pray that as we always do, that it wouldn't be rote, that it wouldn't be common, that it wouldn't be something so familiar that it fails to strike us. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your word, that you would pierce the blindness and the darkness and the sin that so easily ensnares and entangles us, and Lord, that you would bring clarity as to what your word says, and then through the power of your spirit that you would make us obedient to what that call is. 
Lord, we don't bring any understanding on our own. We don't bring the desire to obey or the will to obey or the ability to obey on our own. We need you for all of those things. And so we ask that you would help us. In our weakness, help us. In our lack of faith, help us. Lord, help us to do what you've called us to do. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Most of us thrive on clarity. In fact, there's not too much in life that's more frustrating than instructions that are not clear. When there's something that has to be done, but we're just not sure how to get there. Over the last few weeks in our house, we've been uh, shifting kids around in various rooms and various places, and that has meant that Abby has wound up with some space in her room for some new things. And so sitting in her room at this very moment are two large boxes from Ikea. And I have enough experience with Ikea furniture to know that when I open those boxes, I will be confronted with a small booklet of instructions. And there will be a funny little man with a funny little tool that tells me to do things to little screws that should work, but that don't always work. And in the lack of clarity and in the frustration, I guarantee you that at some point this week, I will very seriously consider whether it is just better to leave the desk in the box because it can still function like a desk. It's got a flat top and I can still put things on it. But that clarity might lead to confusion, it might lead to frustration, it might lead to inaction. And here's the tragedy, that the Western church, by and large, is a church in crisis because we don't know what we're supposed to be about. There's a lack of clarity when it comes to our mission. I think that, sadly, polling most of the people in any given pew, not just you guys and maybe not even you guys, but in the pews in general on any given Sunday, people would struggle to come up with a clear, compelling, uh, and biblical understanding of why it is we are here. Why does the church exist? We buy a lot of books. We watch a lot of Christian movies. We go to a lot of Christian conferences, but we lack clarity on what we're supposed to be doing. We know that we're supposed to do a lot of things, and I think we could probably name a bunch of those things that we're supposed to be doing. We are supposed to be a people that love. We are supposed to be a people that give. We are supposed to be a people that serve and who pray and who fellowship. And all of those things are absolutely true. But the reality is that all of those things are done with the view of moving toward one main goal. And that's what Matthew ends with. 27 and a half chapters of the glorious reality of who Christ is. And then this one absolutely crystal clear ending statement that says what we are supposed to do about it. The church is given one mission. And if you've got your Bibles, we're going to kind of open up with the lead here. And that is there's one command in all of this. There's one central theme. So if you write in your Bible, highlight it, circle it, underline it. If you don't, then at least put your finger on it so you remember where it was later. Here's the central command, and that is to make disciples in verse 19. If you're a grammar nerd, that is the only word in this text that is given in the imperative in the command form. Make disciples. All of the other things that surround this support that, define that, clarify that, but they all move toward that one thing. What is the church supposed to be about? The church of Jesus Christ left on earth until he comes is supposed to be making disciples. And so the hope for today is that we move toward clarity and ultimately toward obedience when it comes to that column. As we go through this, we're going to see three things. We're going to see the power of the Great Commission, the process of the Great Commission, and the promise of the Great Commission. That's where we're headed today. So the first thing we're going to look at, the power behind the Great Commission. And as we open up verse 16, we're going to see that the setting has changed. Look at verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. 
Matthew does not fill in every historical detail for us. If we went through the other gospel accounts, we would be told about the time when Jesus appeared to the disciples, about his interactions on the road to Emmaus, about his appearance where Thomas had his doubts dealt with. But Matthew doesn't give us those things. He doesn't go through the ascension account. Matthew moves from one place to another in Galilee. And so to close Matthew's gospel, you get one more map slide. For those of you who did not get enough of them, you get one more map slide. And we're reminded that as we are working through these last several weeks, all of the events of the Passion Week happened where that red star is there in Jerusalem. But now we've been moved up north to the area of Galilee. This is where uh, the bulk of Jesus' earthly ministry took place. This is where he was from. This is where Capernaum is, where his base of operations was. This is where the majority of the healings were, the majority of the the feedings were. This is where the majority of those things that testified to who he was took place. And this is where a majority of his followers would have been from. Not just his disciples, but his followers in general. And that's important to remember because if we were to read 1 Corinthians, and particularly 1 Corinthians 15, as Paul is talking about the resurrection, he says, we know that this is true in part because Jesus appeared to over 500 people during that time between his resurrection and his ascension. And I think this is one of those times, best understood, I think this is one of those times where he appears to a number of people. The 11 disciples that are left, Judas having been dealt with now, the 11 disciples that are left are certainly the focal point, but this is given to a group of disciples in general, and I think there was a large crowd gathered on that hillside. And in the context here, there's meant to be something of a contrast. Remember how last week ended. This is this lie that has continued to go out, that his disciples came and they stole the body. And that story has gone out from people to people to people, and that's the story you know today. But here's what actually happened. This is what his disciples actually did. They go to the mountain in Galilee to which he had directed them, and that gives us the context for this struggle that's there. Look at verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. As he comes to them on that mountain, there's a mixed response of worship and doubt. Well, how could there be doubt? Once again, because Jesus has gone through and he's done a number of things that Matthew doesn't give us. Matthew doesn't tell us about the road to Emmaus and how those two disciples had to have their eyes opened. He doesn't give us that account of Thomas, who wasn't there in the initial appearance to the twelve or to the eleven, but who has to go and put his hands in Jesus or his fingers in Jesus' wounds and his hands and in his side. The eleven disciples have had their doubts dealt with by this point, but for many especially if this is that larger gathered group, this might be the first time that they've seen him. They've heard about Jesus. They've heard about the resurrection. They certainly have hope, but there's still doubt. Doubt was the natural kind of common first response. Even the, even the 11 disciples, Luke's gospel says when the women went and told them what had happened, when they told them about the empty tomb and the angels, Luke's gospel says it seemed to them an idle tale and they didn't believe. Jesus had to directly deal with their doubts, and now we come to this crowd, and there's this beautiful picture, this really honest picture of the response to Christ. Hope, worship, and doubt. But we don't want to move on from that too fast, because that means something. Please notice that even in their doubt, even in their lack of clarity, they still showed up. Their faith might have been weak, but it was enough to get them to move toward obedience. How often in my life do I allow confusion or maybe a lack of clarity to be a terrible excuse for not doing anything at all? They were hopeful, maybe doubtful, 
but they were obedient. And even in their doubt, we see a glimpse of Christ's grace here because he doesn't correct them. He doesn't condemn their littleness of faith. He just speaks to them with clarity and power, and he makes this great statement, and that's where he concludes this section. He makes this statement that is the foundation behind everything else that he's going to say. Look at verse 18. Jesus came, and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is shocking. Because we can't even really get our minds around what all authority would look like. We see such small pictures of authority. And Jesus says that all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And if we're paying attention, Matthew's gospel has been preparing us for that from the beginning. All through Matthew's gospels, there is this tension between the reality of who Christ is and the reality of his humility. This is Jesus, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the Christ, the Messiah, the promised king but he's born and laid in a manger in obscurity. This is Jesus who wise men come from hundreds of miles to worship, but this is Jesus, the king, who has to flee from Herod into Egypt. This is Jesus, the king, with the authority to heal with a word, with the authority to send demons out with a word, with the authority to calm the wind and the waves with a word. But this is Jesus who the religious leaders hate and who the crowds by and large reject. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords who will rule on his throne from Jerusalem, but who walks into Jerusalem to be obedient to death and even death on a cross. Jesus doesn't recount the details. He doesn't give them proofs of who he is. He simply says, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And all authority means just that, all authority. But in reading that, we say, well, wait a minute. How can Jesus have all authority in heaven and on earth when there are clearly people who don't recognize or respond to that authority? There might be people in this room who don't respond to that authority. There might be people listening or watching who haven't heard or responded to that authority. How can Christ have all authority and yet there, are people, there be a people who are still in rebellion? Well, the reality is that that authority even now waits to exercise the fullness of his authority. In his authority, he withholds judgment. Because if Christ exercised the fullness of that authority, if he exercised the fullness of that authority and ability to judge men right now, those who have placed their faith in him would be with him, and those who haven't would go into eternal condemnation. But in his authority, he waits. Peter actually tells us why. Peter picks up on this, who was there and listening. In 2 Peter 3, he says that he's not slow, he's not forgetful, He's not slack in carrying out his promise. No, he's patient. Why? Because he's not willing that any should perish. In his authority, he knows exactly who is his. And God does not lose one of his people. What a remarkable statement to his authority that he is in such control of all of human history that he will not consummate human history until all of his people are his people. But there is coming a time when that authority that is real now, that is even exercised in holding back judgment now, there is a time when that authority will be poured out and demonstrated clearly over the whole earth. That's what Paul writes about in Philippians 2. You remember, we've been through that a few times, especially over the Gospel of Matthew, and especially as it's come to his crucifixion, that this Christ who is humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross. But Paul writes in Philippians 2, verse 9, Therefore, because of that humility, because of that humility, that obedience. Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Jesus Christ is giving his men, his disciples, this gathered group of people, a command that is going to change the entire earth. He is going to give them a command that goes against everything that they would consider normal and everything that they would think would be possible. And they can't do it on their own. Now, Jesus uses that same authority that is going to bring the world to its knees, that same authority that is going to bring everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth to their knees in recognition of who he is, now to send out his church. That ultimate divine sovereign authority is what compels the church forward in her mission. So what is that mission? We know that this is the Great Commission passage. We could probably identify the various parts to it, but we need to honestly evaluate whether his mission is our mission, whether his priorities are actually our priorities, because Jesus doesn't say out, doesn't go, say go and make disciples on your own. He doesn't say make disciples and good luck with how that'll work. Do the best you can, do what you think works, do what seems to be the most effective. No, uh, he says that he's entrusted us with a very particular mission, and he gives us exactly what that ought to look like. So now we're going to look at the process of the King's Commission. And as we come to the heart of the passage, and that's kind of what this is, this heart of the Great Commission passage, I want to make sure that we're clear. This is very often used as a missions message, as the sending message as we send out missionaries, or as we urge one another to go out and do discipleship in a way that travels. And that is true. That is entirely appropriate. But if we only think of this in terms of global missions, if we only think of this in terms of going to places that are far off, then we're actually going to miss the heart of what he's saying. Because remember, the central command in this whole section is what? Not a rhetorical question. It is what? Make disciples. The central command in all of this is to make disciples. And now what we're going to see is that this is what is required to make disciples. This is what making disciples will naturally entail. And the first thing is that you are to go. That's what verse 19 says. Go, therefore, because all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Christ, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, that is so common to us. We have heard that so many times that we forget how striking and how shocking that would be. Because the disciples are not a naturally going people. Israel is not a naturally going people. If you've been with us in Dr. Bealey's class, or uh, if you've uh, kind of heard any of the Israel things, or maybe you've heard us mention it in a sermon or two, Israel uh, was placed at a very strategic point on the globe. It's this narrow little strip of land in the middle of nowhere that's on the way to everywhere. And God placed Israel in his divine sovereignty in a place where they could be the light to the nations that he called them to be when they were obedient. But Israel, even though they're right there on the Mediterranean, they don't develop a naval fleet that goes and spreads the fame of the God of Israel. They don't develop a huge land army that goes out conquering. Israel maintains their relative, really their very small geographical space, and world history kind of revolves around them. Even if you look back through the Gospel of Matthew, what has the consistent message been? Don't tell what you've seen usually with the caveat, until the resurrection. When Jesus sent out the disciples to do that first kind of initial foray into ministry, he sent them to the cities of Israel, not to the Gentiles. And now that whole thing, that whole cultural expectation, 
has been flipped on its head. And now it's not only go, but it's go and make disciples of all the nations. And once again, Matthew has been preparing us for that statement since the very beginning of the book. Because this is Jesus, the Christ, the son of Abraham. And if we know what the Abrahamic covenant promises were, then we might remember that way back in Genesis, God told Abraham that he would give him land, seed, and blessing, that he would bless those who blessed him, that he would curse those who cursed him. And then he said, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This is how that promise works out. As Jesus fulfills the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant, we are sent out to participate in that all nations reconciliation. God's heart has always been for the nations. You look at the prophetic promises of what the Messiah was supposed to do, and he is supposed to rule and have authority not just over Israel, but over the nations. He is supposed to bring blessing and peace and comfort and instruction, not just to Israel, but to the nations. And we say, great, we're a sending church. We write checks, we support missionaries, we welcome them in when they visit, we post their newsletters. And we should, we should be an active, vital part of sending people to the four corners of the globe. And their disciple-making mission should be a key part of how we evaluate our partnership with them. But if we leave it at the missionary who goes far away, then it's very easy to leave myself out of it. Well, I'm not called to go. I'm not able to go. I'm not equipped to go. I can't afford to go. I can't physically go. But here's the thing. The Great Commission already assumes that we are going. In fact, you could very accurately translate it, going, therefore, make disciples. Since you are going, as you are going, make disciples. And the reality is you are all going somewhere. I know that because at some point this afternoon we are going to lock this building and I will be one of the last few people out of here. None of you, as far as I know, set up camp underneath the pews during the week. No. The church doesn't stay here and wait for the world to come to us. The church gathers to worship, to be equipped, and then the church scatters to take that message of the gospel wherever we're at. So make disciples where? Make disciples in your home. Parents, make disciples of your children. Make disciples of your neighbors. Make disciples in your workplace. Make disciples on your high school campus. Make disciples on the sports field. And when we have that mindset, it changes really the heart of everything that we're doing. Because the requirement is less about where you go, and the requirement is about what your heart attitude is while you are doing all those things that you're already doing. It completely changes the focus. Because now, I don't live in this particular neighborhood because it's nice and quiet and the yards are neat and everybody leaves me alone. Now God has placed me in that neighborhood, in that particular time and place and geography, so that I might make disciples where I'm at. It's not, I have this job for now, even though I hate it and I can't wait till I get something better. It's now the God of the universe who knows all things has sovereignly given me this particular work to do at this particular time with these particular people so that I might make disciples. It means that a high school class you're taking is not a mistake or a thing to be trudged through until you can get through it. It's a disciple-making opportunity. It means the sports fields that you go to. The goal of the game is not to win. It's not to learn how to be a better sport. It's not even to play your best. What is the goal? It's to make disciples. See, the problem is when we forget what our purpose is, then we begin to distract ourselves with all kinds of things that don't actually matter on an eternal basis scale. I can do a lot of things and miss the main thing that God has called me to do in all of those things. 
The reality is that the gospel message goes, and it goes everywhere that the disciple of Christ goes. That leads to the second characteristic. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The command, make disciples. And that's going to require that you have a going mindset, but going is not the end of the story. It is not enough to go. This gospel that goes with us is assumed to have a result. Jesus says that disciple-making will have its evidences that when you preach that message wherever you're going, that you're going to see that it does exactly what it's supposed to do. As people hear and respond, the church that goes is going to be the church that baptizes. And how are those connected? Well, what is baptism? Uh, Baptism is the outward public demonstration of an inward spiritual reality. Baptism is the public proclamation of a personal faith in Jesus Christ. It's this picture, this visible, tangible picture of what it means to be identified with Christ as someone is placed under the water, identified with him in his death and his burial and raised out of the water in his resurrection. And it's this powerful picture of the whole of salvation. Because remember, the gospel message that the church brings isn't just a set of historical facts. There are true things that happened in history with the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ, but all of those things demand a response. They're historical facts that require me to do something about it. And the reality is that as that gospel goes out, we see people's hearts changed. And then baptism becomes this initial demonstration of some very powerful things. First of all, it's this public demonstration of the desire to obey. The baptism of a believer is the sign of an obedient, committed believer. Because Jesus said, baptize. Jesus told his disciples to be baptized. It shows a willingness on the part of the disciple to obey the Christ that they say they have faith in. And we forget that those things are tied together in part because our baptisms are very, very comfortable. We do them in an air-conditioned building, in heated water, in front of people that are thrilled that it is happening. And those are all good things. I am not speaking down on those things at all. I am not calling for any change. I hope that Ken and Wayne, whoever prepares the baptismal, does not put ice in there just to up the spirituality. That is not what we're calling for. But the reality is that in this initial context, and indeed in much of the world today, to be obedient in baptism has a high cost. To be publicly identified with Christ means that there are others that will not identify you. You might lose family. You might lose friendships. You might lose business connections. You might lose your very life in some places. So it shows this willingness to identify with Christ and follow him no matter the cost. And the second thing is baptism also identifies you with the church. It is this binding agent for the church. Baptism is kind of the gluten that holds us all together. It's like what Paul said to the Ephesians. Or one hope one faith, one Lord, one baptism. See, we are all a very varied people. We're all very different. Some of us are way more different than others, and that's okay. Because we come together and we're reminded of what brings us together. What gives us our identity is not a building. No matter how old and cool the architecture is, it's not a name It's not a denominational affiliation. What gives us our identity is our identity in Christ, our shared identity in Christ. 
So he says, go and make disciples. And one of the things that that is going to entail is baptizing them. This wonderful reflection, he says, of the work of the Trinity. He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This beautiful picture of the fullness of God. Christ setting himself equal to God, by the way. Baptized into his name as with the Father. It's also a reminder of the work of the whole of God in salvation. God, the Father who calls. God, the Son who saves. The Spirit who seals and indwells believers. The idea that we are baptized into the fullness of God. This whole identification with who God is. So much that we could say there, but we got to move on. Because the disciples are supposed to be about one central task, to make disciples. How are they going to do that? To do that will require going. That as they go, they bring this message of the gospel. To do that will require baptizing. That as people are saved, they call for repentance and faith. And we see those first demonstrations in people's lives. And then the final part of the process, and that's in verse 20, and that's teaching teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. The word disciple means learner. It means it identifies someone who is dedicated to someone with the intent of learning about them and following after them. To be a disciple of Christ means that you are a lifelong learner of Christ. And to be a church that makes disciples means that you are a church that teaches people about what it means to follow Christ. Not all churches hold to that. I was at a, a church meeting, a meeting of some church leaders here in town, and one of the pastors of that actually said that we are a reaching church and not a teaching church, was how they said it. They saw that their, their primary goal was to get non-believers in the door and to see people saved. And then he said, you know, as the years go by, if they want to learn and really develop uh, some deeper things, then they wind up going somewhere else. And he while it is critical that the church reaches out, while it is critical that the church reaches the lost with the gospel, that's never the end of the mission. We are a people that teach others all that Christ has commanded. And we teach them for a specific reason. It's not just a collection of facts. Jesus says, teaching them, and look at what your Bible says there. He says, teaching them all of the theological nuances and minute arguments that will make them impressive theologians. No? Nobody's translation. Good. Save some discussion. It says, teaching them to do what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Teaching for the sake of obedience. Now, do I want you to be more theologically informed? Absolutely. Do I want you to know everything that I could possibly transfer into you about your Bible? I want you to know who wrote it, when they wrote it, how it all fits together. I want you to know the meanings behind it, but not just for the sake of knowing. We want you to know for the sake of obeying and observing all of those things. Uh, there's nothing more heartbreaking than someone who comes up after a service and says, that was the most spectacular sermon I have ever heard, and then leaves it there with no intention of doing thing, anything about it. And I'm not thinking of anyone in particular, so don't take offense to that. Uh, but do you want to encourage, not just me, but anyone who preaches, do you want to really encourage anyone who opens up God's word? When you thank them, Say, this is what God says, and this is what I need to do about it. That is the most encouraging thing that your pastor can hear, that somehow the Word of God and all its authority is going to lead to change in your life. Because if our teaching doesn't move us toward obedience, then it's a waste of time. And we're supposed to teach all that Christ has commanded. 
That's the scope of the teaching, all that Christ commanded. And if that's going to happen, we have to be a people of the book. We've got to be a people who are immersed and who are saturated with God's Word because this is where we find what Christ has taught us. In this authoritative, inerrant, completely satisfactory and sufficient Word of God. That's why this has to be at the center of all that we do. Sunday mornings, bring your Bible because that's what we're opening. Awana, youth groups, small groups, whatever the context is, and I'm not saying there has to be a sermon in all of those contexts, so don't get nervous, but in every context where there's any kind of instruction that takes place, the Bible has to be the starting point. Because at the end of the day, we do not need thoughts, opinions, feelings. I don't need yours, and you certainly don't need mine. If we are going to be told to order our lives according to certain principles, if we are going to be told to alter and sacrifice what we want and pursue something else, then that had better be based on something more than a feeling or a thought or an intention. It has to be based on something with actual eternal value. And in this statement, to teach people all that he has commanded them, there's a challenge there because some of the all is a lot more comfortable than others. When Jesus says, come to me, because my yoke is easy and my burden is light, that's easy to hear. I want to hear about that kind of rest. When Jesus says, you don't have to be anxious for anything, that your Father in heaven who watches over the birds and the flowers, who loves you so much more than them, will take care of all of your needs, I want to hear those things. But when Jesus says, I'm going to the cross, and by the way, to follow after me means that you have to deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. That's a little harder. When the teaching of Christ is that every day you have to put yourself to death for the sake of following me, that doesn't sit quite as well. But we've been told to teach and to observe all. Are we making disciples? Well, we have a way to evaluate that. Are we a going people? Are we characterized as a church with this gospel in our mouths that just kind of leaks out everywhere we go? Are we a people that baptize? Do we actually see that gospel that we preach making changes in people's lives? Are we a teaching people? Are we a church that expects people to not only follow Christ, but to soak up the teachings of Christ and then move toward obedience in those things? But even if we do all of those things, even if they did all of those things, there's still a question that underlies all of that that we have to answer, and that is this, how do we know that it'll actually work? Because you look at who he's talking to, and it's not the most impressive group. Most of them, the vast majority of them were not wealthy. In fact, the vast majority of them lived from day to day, one day to the next, based on the most meager means. Most of them were not influential. Most of them were not powerful. Most of them were not well-traveled. In fact, the vast majority of them, again, likely had never gone farther than from wherever their hometown was to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts and the festivals. And that was about the extent of their travels. And now Jesus says, here's a message, go change the world. How are they supposed to do that? Well, you're going to preach the gospel. He's not sending them with an army to conquer territory. He's not sending them with a message that says this will change your life in all the most tangible, pleasing ways. He says you're going to go and you're going to tell them about a God who they've offended. And you're going to tell them that the wages of sin is death. And you're going to tell them that only this Jesus Christ could satisfy that. And you're going to talk about a Messiah, a King, 
who died. You're going to tell them that he was raised again, and you're going to tell them that he's coming back someday. How does that message, given through those people, with those sets of means, possibly do what it was intended to do? Well, this passage ends with a promise. Matthew ends with a great promise that holds together everything in this great commission. And the first part of that promise is the continuing presence of Christ. Look at the rest of verse 20. And behold, I am with you always. How precious would that have been to these people? What was the most devastating event of their lives? It was losing Christ. The one that they had hoped in, the one that they had uh, followed, the one that they had every expectation built into. When he was around, at least there was hope. When he was around, it looked like things were moving in the way they needed to. But as soon as he was gone, fear, despair, panic, so quick to flood in. And now Jesus says, I am with you always. The one who had all authority in heaven and on earth is actually going to be with them as they carry out that ministry. And what have they seen of that authority? They've seen him teach with authority. They've seen him heal with a word. They've seen him calm the wind and the waves. They've seen him raise Lazarus from the dead. Now they've seen him raised from the dead. How comforting would that be? How much more confident are you when you know you're moving into a situation with somebody who can absolutely handle that situation? We've all seen it. You go to the pool and you see the little kid on the edge of the pool that's terrified to dive in, even though they're floaties from head to toe. But as soon as dad stands there below them and says, I'll catch you, there's confidence. Why? Not because the situation has changed, but because he is there with them. If I were going to walk down a dark alley late at night by myself, it would not be something I was eager to do. But you pair me with a 6'6 MMA fighter, and I'm probably okay with that. Jesus is going to give them a command that they are utterly incapable of filling on their own. They don't have the will, they don't have the wisdom, they don't have the means, and in fact, if he does leave it up to them, then none of us are sitting here today. They just don't have the ability to do what he has told them to do. They need a strength and a wisdom that they do not have on their own. And that same thing could be said of us. This great commission that carries on to the church even now is not something that we can fill out and accomplish in our own strength. We need something greater than ourselves. And that promise is Christ with us. Emmanuel, God with us, who will remain with us. And you say, but wait, Jesus isn't here. In fact, Jesus was going to leave them. We know that he does, 40 days after his resurrection, ascend into heaven. He does go back to the right hand of the Father. So how can he be gone and still be with his people? The answer, of course, is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit is still future for them. It's a reality that we live with that we take for granted. But how is it that these men who were terrified at the arrest of Jesus will very shortly preach even when it means their arrest? How is it that these men uh, who were so terrified at the death of Jesus will now be obedient to preach the gospel even when it brings their death? And the answer is only the Holy Spirit. It's all a work of the Spirit. Jesus says he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that is only possible because of this promise. Because the church does not go out for one minute on its own. It goes out with Christ. The Great Commission is not go and build your church your way through your means to the best of your ability. The Great Commission is the call to make disciples of Christ by preaching Christ 
in the power of Christ, in the presence of Christ. And even that promise points them and it points us forward. Matthew's gospel ends by pushing us forward so that we look at the fulfillment and the perfection of where this is all going. Look at how the gospel closes. Behold, I am with you always. For how long? Till the end of the age. I am with you, he says, until the consummation and the fulfillment of all things. Until the plan is brought to fruition, I'm there. Until I am with you again, I'm with you. Remember, this great commission is a forward-looking commission. The church is never done in this age. We never land the plane on the deck of the carrier and pronounce mission accomplished, to borrow a recent political happening. We are a people who will always be on mission until Christ comes. And the great comfort in all of that is that he knows exactly what is going to come. Hasn't that been the theme through the last few weeks? To the disciples, it is all questions, it is all uncertainties, it is all death, it is all defeat. But even in the midst of the cross, even in the midst of that sealed tomb, what was Matthew's consistent reminder? God knows. God is working. This is all going perfectly according to plan, even though you can't fathom that in your human understanding. And we look around us now and we say, this can't be how it's supposed to be. The world is going off the rails. People are growing harder and harder. The gospel doesn't seem to penetrate. People aren't listening. The world is insane. And God says, press on with the mission that I've given you. Why? Because it works. Because we know that it will do exactly what he told us. Because he has shown us that it does exactly what he said it would do. Turn with me to Revelation 7. This is where we're going to close. Revelation 4 is this picture of worship in heaven, angels and elders surrounding the throne of God, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In Revelation 5, God has a scroll, the title deed to the earth, and no one is fit to open it except this lamb who was slain. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. In Revelation 6, the scroll has its seals broken, and the judgment of God is poured out on mankind. And then we come to Revelation 7. After God selects and seals his witnesses, after he sends them out, to proclaim that gospel, even in the greatest period of trial and tribulation in human history. Look with me at, Roman, or at Revelation 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and they worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. That is the hope of this mission because we have the proof and the promise that it works. What would you attempt if you knew that you could not fail? That question has been asked before. What would you do if you knew that you would be successful? Would you propose to the girl of your dreams if you knew that she would say yes? I was pretty sure Brandy would say yes. And I was still nervous. 
if you knew that the person that you were sharing the gospel with would repent and follow Christ, would you do it? And you say, we don't have that guarantee. You're absolutely right. But we do have the guarantee that some will. That God has people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And that he knows who they are. And all he's called us to do is to be faithful to proclaim the gospel that will save exactly who he intends. That's the one thing. That is the one singular mission of the church, is to make disciples. This week I read a quote from a man named Oswald Smith, and he says this, any church that is not seriously involved in helping fulfill the Great Commission has forfeited its biblical right to exist. Wow. That sounds harsh. But if you would consider that for a moment, you'll see that it's absolutely true. Because if we are not about the business of making disciples, then there is no reason for God to leave us here. You know why? Because everything else the church does, we will do better in heaven. Worship, better in heaven. Fellowship between the saints, remove sin, so much better in heaven. Make disciples, we only have the opportunity for that right now. A reminder that God has called us to pursue the one thing that he has left us for until he returns. Three things for us to consider as we go. First of all, are we consumers or are we those who have been given a commission? Why do we come to church? Why do we gather? Not just us in this individual body, but why does the church bother to gather at all? And the prevailing mindset, again, especially in the Western church, is to approach the church with an attitude of a consumer. I go to this church because they have music that I like. I go to this church because they have preaching that I can sort of tolerate. I go to this church because they have the ministries that my family needs to make us feel connected. The church was never designed to be populated by consumers. The church is populated by people who are on mission. We're commissioned with a great purpose to the gathered church and to us as individuals. So it's a great question to ask, why am I here? Am I here to consume? Or am I here to be fed, equipped, discipled for the purpose then of going out and further making disciples? Second, God is so gracious in that he has given us a tool to evaluate exactly how we're doing. Because it's easy to get confused and misled and it's easy to pursue all kinds of good things that aren't necessarily the main thing. We might say that we're a church that participates in the Great Commission, but this tells us whether we actually are. Are we a going people? Are we a people who see the gospel as something that is embedded in every part of our lives as we go? Are we a baptizing people? Do we see that change happening? Are we a teaching people? And this trickles down to every ministry, every activity, and every gathering that we have. And it's also helpful for us as individuals to ask, how am I doing in this? Because to participate in this Great Commission call will cost us something. It'll cost our time. It'll cost our effort. It'll cost our resources. It will cost the other things that we want to do because this now becomes the priority. It means that I'm going to have to focus really hard on what God has called me to do, how he has gifted me, how he has equipped me for the sake of building up the body and for the sake of making disciples. And it's going to mean that everything else doesn't matter as much. 
that I'm willing to give up the time, the effort, the resources, the attention, the popularity, the position, that all of that is less important than being found faithful to the one thing that God has called me to do. That leads us to the final thing, that because behind all of this is this wonderful guarantee. The plan works. That's why we read out of 1 Corinthians. Because it still doesn't seem like it should. Uh, you know, I'd participate in the Great Commission, but I'm just not that guy. I'm not smart enough. I don't have the answers. I don't have the education. I don't have the words to speak to people. I don't have the personality. I'm not I'm going, outgoing. I'm not. I can't. It, all of those are focused on me. The power and the promise behind the Great Commission has nothing to do with me, and it has nothing to do with you, and it has everything to do with the power of God and the power of the gospel that we preach. God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. God says, go talk about a crucified Messiah. Foolishness to the Gentiles, a stumbling block to the Jews. It's going to sound ridiculous to the ones that are perishing, but to the ones that are being saved, that gospel is going to change their hearts. God has chosen the foolish things to shame the wise. You don't have the words. You don't have the wisdom. You were never designed to. I was never designed to. The gospel doesn't hinge on my ability. The gospel hinges on the power of God who gave it. That is the mode, the means, the method of transformation. Obedience to what he's called us to do. So the question isn't, what do you bring to the table? The question is, are you willing to faithfully pursue what God has called you and I to do and trust him for the result? Let's pray. Lord, we're a people that know the Great Commission. I pray that you would make us faithful to actually fulfill it, that we would be a disciple-making people, that we would see ourselves as a people that are going and that wherever we go, we have one particular mission to be about. I pray that we would be a people that see that transformation, that we witness baptisms, that we rejoice in what the gospel does in people's lives. And I pray that we would be a people that are consistently teaching, teaching others, teaching ourselves, exposing ourselves to the truth of who Christ is so that we might observe all that he has commanded us. And God, I pray that we do all of this with the strength and the confidence that comes from knowing that it's not about us, that we can do these things because of who you are. And that we'll do these things until you come again, until you consummate the plan that you have for all of creation. Lord, what a wonderful thing it is to know that even in those areas where we're weak, you're strong. And so we're not called to do better. We're called to be faithful and watch you work. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, everybody, let's stand together and we'll close in song.